Mark chapter 13 as we transition from the cradle to the cross. We've rightfully so, I think, become so familiar with the four Gospels as as Christians that it's easy to miss or overlook how intentional they are in the way that they've been written and the structure that they have. Speaking of the Gospel of Mark in particular, uh, one commentator said that the book is basically an extended introduction to the passion narrative, the final week of Jesus' life and his crucifixion, uh, since at least the last six chapters of Mark focus on that week in particular. But all four Gospels do that to some degree. Really, you could say that of all four of them. In other words, by the Holy Spirit's guidance and inspiration, the four Gospels emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ as the center point of His ministry on the earth. And when we give this event the attention that we're meant to, against the backdrop of all that God has revealed in Scripture, we begin to see the cross as not just the emphasis of the four Gospels in a literary sense, but of the Word of God, period. And therefore, of the plan of God, for the world, for all human history. Beloved, we cannot put too much emphasis on the cross of Jesus Christ as the means of understanding everything, including, of course, the Word of God. I believe the centrality of the cross in Mark's Gospel is the key to understanding chapter 13, where we arrive this morning in our study. Mark 13 is, and I quote, an apocalyptic presentation for the passion or preparation for the passion narrative. The cross of Jesus Christ was the end of the world as we knew it. The world that exists now and in which we live today marks the last days of this planet. As God has achieved His redemptive purpose through His Son that will bring about the end for which God created everything in the first place. The death of Jesus Christ is the event that ushered in the last days that will culminate in the consummation of all that God has planned since before the foundation of the world. Let me pray and we'll begin the text. Father, I ask for the filling of your Holy Spirit this morning for the sake of preaching your word. God, please be with me. Help me speak clearly. Help me speak accurately, rightly dividing your word. I pray that you have prepared me for this. I ask, Father, that you would watch over all who listen as well. Help us hear properly. May your spirit penetrate our hearts with the truth of your word to us and why it's been written for us. So, Father, as believers, we need you. For any in our midst, Father, that you brought here today that are unbelieving, they need you just as much in order to hear the truth that is eternal. We ask for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me start with just the first four verses here. I'm going to go a little bit further than what it says in the bulletin. I, I was late on getting my information to June. So I'm going to work down through verse 27 this morning, but let's start in the first four. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they're the only ones here, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be 
And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This section of Scripture we're beginning now is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It also appears in Matthew 24. It's in Luke 21. It's the last and the longest teaching of Jesus we come to in Mark. The issue, the main issue with Mark 13 is trying to figure out whether Jesus was talking about his second coming or was he talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Or was it maybe a combination of both? I would like us to consider this morning, to just consider at least with me, that this section is actually more about the death and resurrection of Jesus that is about to occur than it is about the second coming or the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. I think it includes these things, but I want us to consider if that isn't the main focus here of what Jesus is talking about. This chapter prepares us very strategically for the passion narrative of Jesus. It is extremely important to a proper understanding of the place of the cross in Mark's gospel. He's written in a way that makes the cross central. So all of his different pieces contribute to that, contribute to the reason for which he wrote. The tendency here, I think that's fair to say, the tendency is to read Jesus or read this as if Jesus is giving details about what will happen after his death and resurrection. So it's more about the reader of Mark than it is about the time of the characters of the story in Mark, since in that reading of it, thinking that he's speaking mainly what happens after his death and resurrection in the future, technically it's somewhat out of place then in Mark. It doesn't really have anything to do with the four gentlemen he's talking to. But why wouldn't we read this chapter like any other chapter in Mark's story, as a key part of the narrative that therefore has its own meaning for the story in which it was written. It flows very naturally out of this escalating conflict we were reading about before we got into Advent in the previous chapters, showing just how controversial and disruptive Jesus is to everything in Israel. Jesus will address only four of his disciples here. These four are already very familiar to us for the most part. They've played key roles so far in the gospel. When we get to chapter 14, Jesus, it'll pick right back up with Jesus back in Bethany, as we would expect, which is where he had been from these last three days described to us here. In other words, there's nothing in the text that tells us in any way that the Olivet Discourse is anything more than an address by Jesus to his inner circle of disciples on the eve of the climax of his ministry, his death on the cross. So we need to ask then, if that's the case, how the contents of this speech inform our, understand, our understanding of what's immediately about to happen in Mark. It stands as almost a pause in the action. We had all this conflict, these confrontations. Then he sits aside with these four and talks to them. So it reads like a narrative aside. And if that's the case, it better prepares us to read what follows. As the disciples are leaving the temple in verse 1, one of them comments to Jesus about how magnificent the temple is. This isn't necessarily like the awe of a tourist at how grand this temple building is and Herod's temple was. This is not the temple Solomon built. This was built later by Herod. This building was amazing. It's it's more than that. It's it's not simply awe at a building. They'd seen it many times. It's, It's better understood almost as words of encouragement to Jesus himself from the faith of his disciples in light of that Zion theology from the Old Testament about how important the city of Jerusalem was, a symbol of God's personal presence with his people. So his reply, therefore, takes them completely by surprise in verse 2 again. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There is zero security to be had in buildings. Zero. Zero. The temple will pass away, just like everything else in all creation. So, beloved, let me just say this at this point. Be wary of a fascination with man-made buildings. They always have been, are, passing away. Even this one. Obviously, this intrigues the disciples, to say the least. So in verses 3 and 4, as Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is directly opposite the temple, so they can still see it, they want to know what he meant by it and why he said it, or when he's talking about it. We spoke briefly about this last Sunday night as it pertains to understanding Revelation. Notice how when Jesus speaks, the disciples tend to misunderstand him. That happens most of the time. They they. They don't understand exactly what he's saying or why he's saying it or what he wants to tell them. Uh, so why is that? Why is it that they constantly misunderstand him? We're, we're finding it here because their eyes are fixed on earthly things like the temple. They're fixated on details. They're fixated on the wrong questions. When and what rather than why and what for. So just like we are, right? We're obsessed with when and what when it comes to Jesus. So when he teaches, rather than asking why or what for, they're asking when and what. And they'll ask their question here really in two parts, verses 3 and 4, verse 7, verse 13. When this is that he's talking about and what will be the sign that will accompany what he's talking about? Why do they want to know that? So that they'll know it when they see it. So that they'll have something concrete to look for in the world to verify what Jesus has said, which means they also presume Jesus was talking about the end of all things. And so his address here will answer both of their questions. So this will take a moment, but let me read verses 5 through 23. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray, you astray. He's talking to them. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see... The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So what are they to trust in? What Jesus said. What I have told you beforehand. Notice again, this is important. Jesus is talking to them. He's talking to you, the four disciples standing in front of him, not somebody else. This refers to them. They're his audience, right? Notice the focus of that last verse in 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Again, why is he telling them to be on guard? Because they're going to experience everything he's talking about here. That's what makes this text hard to understand. These four disciples have to be on guard since Jesus told them beforehand what will happen. That's the way we read it. We don't say, well, that can't be that because... Uh, No, we we have to let the text shape our understanding of the text, right? So no matter how difficult it is then to work with it, we have to submit to it, right? They will witness everything of which he's spoken. Now, why is he telling them to be on guard and to beware? Their desire for a sign, their desire to know the when and the what will make them vulnerable, in particular, to being led astray. Why? Because that's not how things are properly discerned by sight. That's not what God has done. Left clues, and once you find the clue, then you know how things are going to be. He's spoken to us for the last time in His Son, in Jesus. They're looking for something in the world to latch onto, something they can see, that they can touch. And Jesus is telling them, as by the Holy Spirit, he is telling us, don't look at what can be seen. Look at me. Listen to me. Trust in me. In the lifetimes of these four men, false Christs, false messiahs had arisen, continued to arise, claiming to be the Messiah. The world had been and continued to be characterized by cosmic disturbances, as we read about in verse 7 and 8, wars. Rumors of wars. They had experienced these things. The world continue to experience these things. Earthquakes, famines. We talked about this a lot last week, looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. And he says these are but the beginning of birth pangs. As the world goes into labor, so to speak, waiting for the final delivery, if you will, of the Son of Man in glory. How frustrating for the disciples who wanted definite dates and events when Jesus says it'll look more like what you've always seen. It's just going to keep looking like this. He doesn't get definite and specific at all. And in such a world like that, now that he has come in verses 9 and 13, 9 through 13, the disciples will face even more pressure for identifying with Jesus and his purpose The first warning for them to be on their guard comes in verse 9. In light of that, they need to endure to the end in verse 13. But make careful note of the wording in the text at this point, beloved. God reigns over all these things. From the breaking of the world in wars, earthquakes, and famines, to the proclamation of His gospel to those in authority that think they 
are in control of the world. In verse 9, notice this. Notice the wording. Bearing witness before them is not a, you know, fortuitous result of being thrown in prison. It's the reason they've been thrown in prison from God's point of view. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. I will have a hand in sending you to them so that you can proclaim the gospel to them. It is God's design for them. So, beloved, what is Jesus teaching us? The proclamation of what Jesus Christ accomplished is the purpose of the end times. Let me say that again. The proclamation of what Jesus Christ accomplished is the purpose of the end times. So, every Christian can focus on it, not just those who love to read and make charts, right? All we need to do is believe the promise of Jesus that history belongs to him, it's in his hands, and he will bring it to God's appointed conclusion. That is going to happen regardless of our view of the end times. On that, everybody can agree. All kinds of specific details are unnecessary. The proclamation of the gospel to all people of all nations is the priority, beloved. Hear the words of Jesus. Don't get obsessed with the wrong things. Don't look in the wrong places. The suffering of the last days will culminate in great tribulation in verse 19 and is associated with something Jesus calls the abomination of desolation in verse 14. This is why it's so important to understand how the New Testament speaks of the last days. When did they start? How long did they span? That's so important to properly understanding Jesus. In the midst of this elevated suffering that's going to come at this time, there will even be people who can produce signs that could lead away God's elect. Remember Janus and Jambres, the two Egyptian magicians. This has been in the world. There's an ability, probably by the influence of Satan himself and his demons, to do things that are supernatural or that at least appear supernatural. So imagine now the danger of that if that is in the world There will even be people who can produce signs that, if it was possible, would lead away God's elect. Since, so how can that be? Why would that be, if it was possible, why could they pull it off? Because even his elect are doing what he said not to do sometimes. They're fixated on what false messiahs deliver. Signs, symbols, numbers, names. Have you ever noticed how attractive to people a ministry or a person is that gives them extensive details on the end times? Right? Just how, how much they can get a following so fast. You know, the Left Behind books made it all so popular. We got Kirk Cameron movies. We got, it just, it just, that's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to be like. And so if you had somebody rising up that could get definite and precise and maybe even do some things that were amazing, imagine the amount of Christians that are looking for those things that would follow those things if they saw them. This is very dangerous, beloved. We need to hear the words of Jesus. Hear your Savior. The disciples have to keep alert. They have to keep alert. Jesus is letting them know, you guys are asking the wrong questions here. If they're seeking signs, as they are in verse 4, they're opening themselves up to danger in the last days. Don't do that. We need to know, you and I, what we need to know is who Jesus is and where Jesus sits. 
That's it. Not the name of a city or an emperor or a missile or any dates. Jesus is pulling them away from looking to things like the temple building or its destruction to stay encouraged or remember that God is in control. Listen to him. They have to look at and listen to his son, Jesus. So he resets their sights. In verse 14, he tells them that after this abomination of desolation and the time of great tribulation it brings, then they will see a definite sequence of events in verses 24 to 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is language used elsewhere. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in often in prophetic literature to talk about a cataclysmic end of things. David talks often about God walking on the clouds of heaven and all this imagery of these amazing things happening. These images, these descriptive metaphors always accompany the end as though it's a time of great urgency and fulfillment as we see here. So look in verses 24 to 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So the progression, which is at the center of the discourse, is very clear, isn't it? A time of great tribulation, followed by the coming of the Son of Man followed by the gathering of the elect from the four corners of the earth by his angels. Now, that sounds very much how Revelation describes the mission of the church after Jesus. The coming of the Son of Man, whatever that means, in verses 24 to 27, holds the key to understanding this passage. That statement in verse 26 that Jesus makes here, it comes right out of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In that vision... Daniel saw a series of beasts who were intent on bloodshed. Later he learns they represent four kingdoms, meaning all the earth. That's the use of the number four in Scripture. This is a vision of the flow of human history as kingdom rises against kingdom, nation against nation, as we saw earlier in verses 7 and 8. Then Daniel saw a vision of judgment, right? As the Ancient of Days took his seat, the court sitting in judgment, and the book of judgment being open. That's Daniel 7, 9, and 10. There... At that moment, in judgment, the beasts are stripped of their dominion. But then Daniel sees the only human figure in this vision he has. That's 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him, at that coming to him, were given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. And it's handed to him in what Daniel sees in Daniel 7 when the Son of Man is coming to the Ancient of Days. That's uh, the language that we read in 13 and 14 is used thus far in Daniel to talk about the future kingdom God himself is going to set up to replace all the human kingdoms that are bent on destroying everything. Daniel 2, 44, Daniel 4, 34, they're mentioned here again in verses 7 and 8. There in Daniel 7, the one like a son of man who comes to the Ancient of Days 
in the context of judgment day, receives the position of authority in the kingdom of God. Now, here's the question. When is Daniel's prophecy fulfilled? Daniel will ask that very question in chapter 12, and he is told it won't happen in your lifetime. So Daniel's been given a vision of the beginning of the end of days or of the end of days. But just what exactly is Daniel seeing? Well, what do words mean? Is he seeing the second coming, Jesus returning in power and glory in the clouds? Or is he seeing the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father? Is the Son of Man descending in Daniel 7? Is he returning to earth? Or is he ascending on the clouds? Remember the ascension to the Father. Beloved, he's ascending. And Daniel 7, what have we seen in Scripture? Have we seen that? Have we seen the Son of Man go up in clouds? Yes, we have. In Acts chapter 1. Has the Son of Man ascended? Has the Son of Man, do we read anywhere that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth to give life to those who believe and judgment to those who reject? Have we seen that? Have we heard that? Yes, in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And with that, he dispatches them out to all the nations. To do what? To proclaim the gospel through which he will gather in his elect. Daniel saw a vision of Jesus' exaltation to heaven following his death and resurrection, not his second coming. That's still happening, but that's not what Daniel was seeing in Daniel 7. Meaning that Daniel is fulfilled as Revelation speaks of it. In the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, even though it's very clear what coming to means, even though we have that level of clarity, we still tend to read the words of Daniel and Mark as referring to Jesus' return to earth, but that's not what Jesus is doing in Daniel 7, which is what Jesus is pulling from in Mark 13. Despite the difficulties it causes for us to believe that the coming Jesus refers to here... Is his return. That creates difficulties, which is why this text has become so mysterious and hard to understand, is because it seems like he's telling them this is all going to happen in their lifetimes. Beloved, if we would listen to what the scripture has told us, it would even it out for us. It would level it out for us rather than us having to do these gymnastics to get it to say what we want it to say. In light of things like verse 30, which again clearly states that this coming of Jesus, they were going to see it. It was going to happen in their lifetimes. We still, even in light of that, we still try to cut this passage out of Mark and paste it to an unknown time in the future. And what does that cause us to do? And the proof is in the pudding. We can deny this all day. It's undeniable. What does that view cause us to do? Seek for signs of it. And we must be on guard against that way of thinking, not facilitate it. I mean, beloved, we have to see this. Our eyes are fixated on the wrong things, and the mission is suffering. Right? It, 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 do we hear our Lord? The more precise we try to get about things He has not been precise to us about, the more we need signs to verify our beliefs. That is not what Jesus has done in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Made it so now you have to look for everything. He's accomplished 
everything. I look at Him. The world is going to go as God wants it to go. Did He give me a priority? Did He say, do this? Yes, beloved. And what He told me to do has nothing to do with figuring out a timetable. And we have whole hermeneutical systems that are created by trying to establish a timetable. Beloved, where does that desire, where does that direction come from? The desire to know things that God has not told us. Like we can figure out something if we do enough math and, you know, chemistry with the Bible. We, we, we don't need to do this. We don't need to do this. Beloved, the Son of Man is reigning now. That's what's at stake here in our thinking. The Son of Man is reigning now. He has ascended to the Ancient of Days and taken His seat. Right? That's what's happening now. That's where Jesus is now. Nobody wants to be a heretic and deny that. Right? Okay. All right. Those who crucified Him will see Him exalted. In other words, beloved... That is what Jesus is speaking of here. Taking his seat of dominion and authority as the Son of Man Daniel saw and prophesied of, which shows us how relevant this passage was to those disciples and their generation, not just to us. It is to us, but not only to us. No wonder Jesus cites from this same passage in Daniel 7, later, to those accusing him at his trial. Do you remember this? You remember how important this is? He tells them, are you, the, are you the Messiah or not? Are you the Son of Man or not? I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with clouds of glory. What's he saying to them? That one day from the grave? No, no, no. I'm going to do what Daniel said the Son of Man is going to do, and you're going to be alive for it. I'm going to ascend. You're going to see it. Those who crucified him will see him exalted when God raises him from the dead. This puts Jesus back at the focus of everything. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD, yes, it happened. It does not have a greater theological significance to us than the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The temple isn't the main thing in Scripture. Jesus is the main thing in Scripture. In light of Jesus, the temple is just another building. And Jesus is saying, every single one of these is going to get leveled. They mean nothing. They're going to get leveled because I'm here. I've begun the end. And you're going to see earthquakes and wars. And when has that not been the case in the world? Beloved, it's always been like that. And it's gotten worse since Jesus died. It'll get worse before the end. Who knew what a virus could do to society? One with a 99.4% survival rate. And look at what it's done to our society. Oh, it's very serious for most of the people that get it. I don't deny that at all. I'm simply saying it has changed everything in the way people think and the way they look at each other. As if we needed another thing to judge other people's morality on. Now we got, did you get vaccinated? Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Right? It's just, it's, it's, beloved. If our minds are programmed to take every single thing we get and filter it through this chart of the end times, our eyes are not on Christ. They're not on Christ. 
what the destruction of the temple will do for the disciples is further solidify for them that Jesus is reigning and his plan for the nations is successfully being carried out in the new covenant because of all this upheaval that even results in the total wholesale destruction of Jerusalem. I love what Peter Bolt says here, commentating on Mark 13. Why isn't the exaltation of Jesus in his ascension enough to satisfy our curiosities for the grand? Why does it have to be all these other details? Why does it have to be the rebuilding of a literal temple when Jesus clearly says he himself is God's temple? Then he adds to it when he says, you and I are that temple. We're not going backwards at the end of everything. Jesus is enough. We do not focus enough on the ascension of Jesus Christ and what the ascension means for how we understand Jesus and how we understand our Bibles. That He is reigning at the right hand of God the Father right now. Hebrews even tells us this. As He puts all His enemies under His feet, God the Father does for Jesus. The exaltation of Jesus means everything, beloved. When you're looking at the world right now, all the upheaval is God shoving all of these enemies like little Ottomans under the feet of Jesus. He's reigning now. So it doesn't look like it. It doesn't need to look like it. If we listen to the words of Jesus. One day it will. That doesn't make it any less true now. So if we think we understand the end, that's by reading the Old Testament without factoring in what we know now of the exaltation of Jesus. And so we try to squeeze him into our understanding of the end that we already had before we got to his story in the Bible. We'll be obsessed with seeking signs rather than rejoicing in Jesus who reigns now. The death of Jesus that is about to happen right then and there has universal significance, beloved. It has ultimate power. Its sweep is cosmic. Again, it's not everything. It's, it, it's not the end. It's the beginning of the end. It affects everything. It's, it's his death precisely that the apostles talk about as ushering in these last days, the inaugurating of the end. That's what was happening at the cross. So Israel is not the focus. The Antichrist is not the focus. The temple is not the focus. Jesus is the focus. Jesus ascended, reigning now. When Jesus tells you to watch, what, 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 do, what do you think he wants us looking at and waiting for? It's his exaltation that has happened, beloved. And our, our, our obsession, our, our, this is for our hope that Jesus is talking like this, for our endurance that he's talking like this. And we're just obsessed you know, well, who will the Antichrist be? And so anytime a world leader comes up that's, that has a big, we think maybe it's him, maybe it's Trump, maybe it was Obama, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you think that, who do you think the people in 1945 thought the Antichrist was? His name was Adolf Hitler. Who do you think the Christians in the first century thought the Antichrist was? His name was Nero. Right? It's just, it's, it's, that's what, this is what the end looks like. The Bible tells us that we're in the last days all the time now that Jesus has ascended. So it's going to look like this all the time. 
Jesus is reigning now. Do you, do you want to see something amazing that will stir our curiosity and satisfy our desire for what is grand to fall down and worship before and be excited about and eager? Look at Jesus reigning at the Father's right hand when they had crucified Him and killed Him. When we read verses 24 and 27 in His language there, alongside the cross and Jesus' dying breaths, we'll hear its fulfillment. We'll see what Jesus is talking about there when we see the crucifixion. Mark 13, we hear it again when He ascends in the book of Acts. Mark 13, 27 is Mark's foundation for what Jesus tells his disciples to do in Matthew 28. Go into all the world. Gather my elect from all nations. Why? Because I'm reigning now. I control the world. I'll make sure it gets wherever it goes. So go. Go. Make disciples. That's what the mission to the nations is proof of. It's proof that Jesus is reigning. One day Satan is going to be let loose to cut that off. But now we're sent And Satan can't stop it. So no wonder the church is often represented by angels in Revelation. We are part of the end time reign of Jesus Christ, beloved. We were raised with him. We were seated with him in heavenly places already. Remember Ephesians? Remember? Beloved, he's reigning now and we are reigning as kings and priests with him and will do so in a greater way in the future. Absolutely. But let's give the proper focus to Jesus Christ And his ascension, the gospel's advance to all nations, despite all the opposition, is the proof that the Son of Man has taken his place at the right hand of the Father. So rejoice, beloved, our Lord reigns now. This is why I can't remember who said it. When you hear rumors of persecution and the killing of Christians and the murder of missionaries. Remember a couple years ago when the young man went to that island? believe in the South Pacific where the tribe is that everybody knows just not to go there. They'll kill you. They're cannibals. He went because he said they have to hear the gospel. And they killed him before he got to shore. And then they took him and they apparently ate him. Now, our view of Jesus and eternal life will determine for us whether he was a fool or faithful. Well, he got killed. Yeah. Doing what? Did he lose that day? No. Beloved, that's what Jesus said to do. That young man said, there's a tribe there that doesn't know Jesus. I have to go. Oh, look what he got. He got killed. Yeah, and he got sent home early. Right? The proof that the Son of Man has taken his place at the right hand of the Father are stories like that. And we say, well, that sure doesn't look like the Father's reign. It didn't look like it at Calvary either. When has it looked like it, beloved? That's why you have to be on guard against looking for signs, because if you look for signs, the signs won't point you to the fact that Jesus is reigning. The signs will make you think he isn't. Has anything ever happened on the earth more awful, more terrible, more abominable, more sacrilegious, more wicked, violent, or unjust than the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, tell me a greater abomination than that one. God being murdered by man. It was an abomination of desolation. 
the Son of Man standing where he ought not to be in the place of judgment and wrath in verse 14. That's our place. We should have been standing there getting God's wrath poured out on us, and we weren't because of him. If the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the exaltation of Jesus, if that's correct, we must read the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation here as apocalyptic references to the cross and the death of Jesus. Beloved, they were spitting on Jesus. Jesus made saliva. The wars and rumors of wars and famine and earthquakes in verses 7 and 8, they're normal. They do not signify that the end has come. I believe Luke tells us, but the end is not yet, right? That, but the abomination of desolation in verse 14 appears to be the one thing that does signify the end has finally begun. That phrase, the abomination of desolation, also comes from Daniel. Mark wants us to remember that. That's why you have that little parenthetical thought in verse 14. Let the reader understand that this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 14. The Greek and Aramaic words used for this phrase, they mean a sacrilege, an abomination to God that are particularly uniquely destructive. Jesus tells his disciples to watch out for something sacrilegious and destructive. Beloved, do we think he means the destruction of the temple that will come in 40 more years or so would be more sacrilegious and awful than the crucifixion of Jesus? The destruction of a building would be more horrible and desolate and abominable than the murder of Jesus Christ himself. I don't think we can read it that way. That that's the event so cataclysmic it ushers in the end. Right? I think it's the death of Jesus that is so abominable and desolate it ushers in the end. The most desolate abomination that has ever taken place and will ever take place. The greatest sin ever perpetrated by mankind. The murder of Jesus. He is preparing his disciples for his death by telling them his crucifixion will be a destructive act of sacrilege through which God begins the end of all things. Meaning that even in what they're about to see, God is in control. They need to know this. Be alert. Stay on your guard. Israel's religious leaders will deliver their Messiah sent from God to the Gentiles to be killed. And the representative of the Gentiles there will receive Israel's Messiah and crucify him. The worst punishment for a criminal that could be carried out in the world in the first century. The whole world is complicit in the murder of Jesus. If the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., or the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes in 169 B.C., were abominations committed by Gentiles, and they were. How much worse the murder of Jesus. How much more the temple of His body. Look at how massive this event will be. He tells the disciples in 14 to 16, when they see this, to flee. And they do in Gethsemane, for the first time anyway. They scatter later in Acts. He talks at lengths about how difficult this time will be for those that are close to it. The time of great tribulation. That phrase also comes from Daniel. The prophet learned in Daniel 12, 2, that just before the future day of resurrection, he was seeing there would be a time of terrible suffering in Daniel 12, 1. And he also promises that God's people will be delivered in that time. 
which is a very good thing in light of verse 27, since they need to be free to be on mission. So Jesus pushes the level of this suffering all the way back to creation, echoing what Daniel had said about it in verse 19. For in those days there would be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This tribulation will eclipse all the suffering of creation, period. Beloved, there is nothing secondary or trivial in light of the end about the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. This language matches the prophet Isaiah, who told us in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, his visage was marred more than any other. Jesus was beaten worse than any other because of who he is. What human being has suffered more than Jesus? What person or group has suffered more injustice than Jesus? We love to talk about, we have this thing now called social justice, and we talk about all these things. Do you know what the real injustice is? The worst ever? It's the murder of the Son of Man in place of guilty sinners by God's design. Who has suffered anything more unjust than Jesus? No suffering will ever surpass the suffering of Jesus. No tribulation will ever be greater than what Jesus faced. Look, I know it creates all these problems in our heads. I'm saying we have to work with the text. We're meant to see Jesus Christ as the deliberate and intended center of everything, or we're setting ourselves up to be deceived in the last days. We let our guard down when we relegate him to another piece in the design alongside other things, or that he came to serve other things. And that's especially dangerous because we don't do that intentionally. Nobody in here, regardless of our view, wants to marginalize Jesus. I don't think that. I'm saying we need to remember we might do it unintentionally. We don't realize how often our misunderstandings can do that to us, can cloud our eyes and our minds to the true state of things. Again, read Revelation. Say, I have. Read it again. And when you're done, read it again. See how the Bible describes who Jesus is now. See how the Bible describes where Jesus is sitting right now. The only time you see him stand is when he gets up to welcome Stephen, who is martyred and stoned to death by Israelites for his witness to Christ and his proclamation of the truth. He had to stand. You notice that in Acts? Why? Because he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. What the Bible describes about Jesus isn't just in the future. It's now. It's already and it's not yet. The death of Jesus Christ is the event that ushered in the last days that will culminate in the consummation of all that God has planned since before the foundation of the world. All right, Tony, so what do I do? Worship him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. No more fear. No more wringing our hands with anxiety. When our Lord is sitting down with his feet up while the Father pushes all his enemies under his feet. The only thing I've ever seen an obsession with the end times produce is fear and anxiety. And every little thing that happens, people are freaking out. Maybe this is it. Maybe. And I would ask again, why are people so scared of seeing signs of the times? This, this might be it. This might. Good. Speed it up. Right? Get Jesus back here faster. Right? 
What are we so worried about? Oh my goodness, this might be, that might be the mark of the beast. That might be the mark of the beast. Let it come. Do we want to go home or not? What are we so afraid of? All of that means he is reigning and his plan is being carried out. Our Savior reigns, beloved. His death brought about that which fully accomplished all of God's design for time and space and creation. If we're separated this morning from Jesus by doubt and unbelief, come to Him. Come to Him. For the throne of all power and authority in the universe is also a throne of grace. Come to Jesus and worship. He is everything. The center of our lives will not hold if the center isn't Jesus. Come to Him. He has come to rescue us. Receive Him. Believer, receive Him as your hope and your confidence even as the days worsen and increase in evil as we get nearer and nearer to the end. Don't be afraid. Please don't be afraid. If everything that you're studying makes you worry about everything, stop studying it. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Don't stop what will bring about the end. And when Jesus said this in, in, um, in Matthew, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If we want to speed up the end, go to unreached people groups. Check them off the list so that Jesus will come back, right? Don't put our eyes on things. Put our eyes on the nations, on people's Christian. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, make note that this is the truth. Our Savior is reigning. He owns the world and He runs the world. And He has commanded all people everywhere to repent of their sins and come to Him. You must do this. Because the next time he comes, it's, it won't be like this. It won't be like this. Every eye will see him. And those that aren't ready for him will cry for the rocks to crush them before he gets to them. But in this day, his arms are held out for salvation. He is your maker. He owns you. Repent and come to Jesus. And you will be saved and he will not turn you away. 